It showed up in the mail and I insisted that we hang it up. My roommates and I lived on the second floor of a charming house with a big porch and beautiful wooden floors, inexplicably in every room except the bathroom where there was really ugly industrial carpeting, which I'm not over. We were in our 20s and we were already, or still, hugely progressive. We were an after-school teacher, an architecture student, a visual artist. We were not on any Republican Party mailing lists. So we didn't know how we got it. A 12-month wall calendar featuring President George W. Bush on every page. Looking presidential in an official portrait with Laura, probably one of him playing with their dog. In the April shot, which I remember because that was my birthday month, I confessed repeatedly to my roommates that I thought the president looked, I thought the president looked kind of hot. It was like a rugged close-up of him in a cowboy hat driving a pickup truck, which I'm sure he did all the time in Washington, DC. I was not a supporter of President Bush. In fact, I remember exactly where I was and the way I felt on inauguration day, a feeling of dread, such dread that I hoped that something, even a disastrous something might happen to prevent him from taking office. But when that wall calendar came in the mail, I insisted we hang it up right in the kitchen. Besides national holidays, it had Republican party dates of notes. There, there was a lot about Lincoln in there. They really love Lincoln, who doesn't? And there were birthdays of Republican leadership, including right there, in January, on the 30th, Dick Cheney. I don't know where I got the idea to throw a birthday party for Dick Cheney, but once I had the idea, I only got more and more serious about making it happen. So it was on the night of the party and the apartment was decorated for the first and only time with red, white, and blue streamers. I made a layer cake with homemade frosting. We had drinks and food and my favorite touch above the toilet in the little bathroom. I had swapped out the picture in the frame for one of Dick Cheney, which some of our male friends found particularly disconcerting. Sometime during the planning, or maybe even that night, somebody joked, are we going to play pin the oil slick on Dick Cheney? What passes for a joke in liberal circles? No, I said, we're just celebrating his birthday. That's it. It's a regular birthday party. We are maybe the only people in the country celebrating the vice president's birthday. It's us, his family, and some like overzealous White House interns. That's it, in the whole country. Not everyone loved the idea or my insistence that we do it in the first place or that we do it without critique. But the house filled up, everybody crammed into the kitchen the way they always do and they spilled out onto the porch. And when it was time for cake, we dimmed the lights, I lit the candles, and we sang, happy birthday, Dick Cheney, happy birthday to you. In The Art of Gathering, this Priya Parker book I keep going back to, she describes what she calls the rise of rules. A few years ago, she said she started to notice that invitations came with rules for the event that she was being invited to. Like rules that are common now, like please enjoy our unplugged wedding. Thank you for turning off your phones and cameras. And then rules that were much more particular. 
We ask that for this event, guests not discuss their careers or give their last names till after dinner. There's one huge and regular public picnic. There's one that happens here in Chicago. And there are absolute rules about when people should arrive and leave and, and what size folding table they should bring. And the rules specify there's no disposable tableware and, and then the event's trademark. The rules specify that everyone should dress entirely in white, including their shoes. Priya even mentions a private Christmas party invitation that came with the warning, if you don't RSVP, you won't be invited back next year. For Priya, as for me, especially I think with that last one, some of the rules seemed a little too demanding, a little too rigorous. She wondered for a while if the rise of rules was some kind of like resurgence of etiquette, that nearly archaic code of behavior, but then she realized no, it was just the opposite. These rules are a kind of rebellion against etiquette in favor of something more experimental, in favor of gathering in a way that undercuts hierarchies and makes of guests equals. Etiquette, upon reflection, is unspoken. It's unspecified, unarticulated. We all know etiquette. Etiquette relies on those who gather having been raised similarly with similar understandings of what constitutes good behavior. Still, if you get it wrong, you might not get invited back, even if you don't read that on the invitation. Etiquette is for a closed group of people who know each other already and who know what's expected. People who gather again and again in the same ways over and over, however pleasant those gatherings might be, they also include nobody and nothing new. Etiquette is fixed, etiquette's imperious, etiquette from its lofty, all-powerful perch serves to exclude people who don't know about it. But rules, rules that make expectations explicit, rules have the power to upend that. Rules level the playing field. Rules make it possible to experiment and play just for tonight. Let's see what would happen if we kept our careers out of the mix. Just for tonight at this gathering of talented entrepreneurs, let's see what would happen if no one knew our last names as we talked. If no one knew who had already made a fortune in dot-com. If no one knew who was still a scrappy outsider. We could just talk as people Priya says that rules like these can turn a party into a temporary alternative world. With rules made explicit, we could gather together with people we've never met, people who aren't like us. And all together we could have an experience that's unlike any other, an experience we could share across our differences. The people who gathered in front of Jesus, by some count thousands of them, had come, yes, from all over the same region. And yes, many of them shared a background, shared some experience, but they were new to each other and new to this movement that was still new to everyone. Who would they be to each other and how? When Jesus saw them gathered there, he went out to the mountain and sat down and he began to speak to them. And he started with what I'll call a list of rules. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who mourn, the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. In the Luke version, he includes woes, woe to the rich, to the full, woe to those who laugh. It's maybe a little much, it's a little demanding. Jesus looked at that huge crowd spread out before him and it's possible that beyond even those gathered, that beyond them he could see faintly in the distance others across time and place. It's possible that he saw people arriving there from around the Mediterranean and, and then after them came others from, from India and then far off in time and place joining in at the very back of the crowd, he saw us. Who would all these people be to each other and how? Jesus said in so many ways, at so many different times and so many different stories that the kingdom of heaven was here among us, among all of us. In fact, we're just two or three gather in Jesus' name. He's there too. And in so many of these places, these, these gatherings, the rules are not what you would expect. In the kingdom of heaven, huge debts get forgiven. Strangers get invited to dinner. The lowliest moves up close to the head of the table. A generous landowner pays all of the workers the same regardless of how long they work. The poor are blessed, the meek are blessed, the ones who grieve are blessed. The kingdom of heaven is an alternative world and who will we be in it to each other? And how? A set of rules made explicit, made articulate just for now, just for this gathering of two or three or thousands or billions across the centuries. Rules made explicit can encourage people to connect in ways that otherwise social norms might discourage. Priya gives an example of arriving at a party where she was met by the host at the door and the host said, there's only one rule for tonight. There's an open bar, but no one's allowed to serve themselves. People met one another. Can I get you something? I'd love one. Rules can encourage connection in ways that would otherwise never happen. There is a set of unspoken rules, a code of behavior that goes unspoken, unsaid, and, and living in that construct, nothing's ever gonna change. Not for anyone, not for the world that's getting hotter, not for the pollution, not for the powerless and the vulnerable. I can't remember exactly what year we had that birthday party for Dick Cheney, but by the next January 30th, the war in Iraq, the war that Arundhati Roy was talking about in January of 2003, that war had already been as disastrous as some people had known it would be. In 2005, there were 16,500 recorded Iraqi civilian deaths. In 2006, there were 29,500 more recorded ones. By the time Cheney's next birthday rolled around, the calendar was down and not just because the year was over. No amount of ironic party games would have made it okay. 
The year before, with the lights down, as I carried the cake into the crowded kitchen, everyone singing with a sense of disbelief that we were actually doing this thing, Dick Cheney was already on his way to becoming a war criminal or what some people consider a war criminal. And I do not know that the set of rules for a temporary alternative world, just sing happy birthday. I'm not sure that set of rules prepared us for the kingdom of God. But I do think it's true that in some settings, we already know how we're supposed to behave, or at least some of us do, and it's set and nothing's ever gonna change, but with rules, rules that turn the world upside down, that turn the guest list upside down, that overturn debt and power, a whole other world is possible. It takes imagination, it takes rules being overturned, it takes new rules being voiced so that all people are on equal footing, a level plain where the valleys have been lifted and the mountains and hills made low. Yeah, I don't think singing happy birthday to Dick Cheney necessarily prepared us for the kingdom of heaven. But there was a house full of people and party decorations and food and drinks and people pressed in close to the kitchen singing by candlelight that ended when we blew out the candles on the cake, unafraid to breathe on each other or the cake. And right now, that all sounds like heaven to me.